Hi, everybody. We have a wonderful guest on our show today. Today, uh, we have some wonderful technical <laughs> technical issues before we started up. So we're starting off on the on the great foot already. Uh, we have Dr. Mac uh, from Revealing the Ti- Ivory Tower podcast here today. Uh, let her introduce herself, and then we will kind of jump on in. Yeah. My name is McKenna Herford, but most people refer to me as Dr. Mac on here or know me as Dr. Mac. I'm a licensed psychologist, worked in a lot of different settings. I dabble because I get bored very easily. And so that includes medical settings, corrections, community mental health, college students, inpatient, outpatient, and now private practice. So enjoying that. And then obviously on the podcast piece, my social media platform really try to bring a lot more science communication to start off with my field. Now we've branched out to topics I do not know anything about, which is cool because I get to learn with people and really trying to make nuance sexy, as I've been saying multiple times where we can hold multiple realities at the same time. And that's okay. And it's okay if they feel contradictory and lots of memes and also spicy content. (laughs) That's that's what we're going for. We're going for the memes. We're going for the spicy content. We're going for all that fun stuff. So first question, we'll kind of jump right in. What is the ivory tower? What does it mean? And why, what do we have to reveal? I think that's probably a good question to start with, considering that's my whole platform and my handle. So it's a, it's a metaphor that is most frequently used to refer to people in academia. So if you kind of picture this gigantic tall tower and then people in academia are up here, it's a bubble. It's, it's removed from everyone else kind of on the ground. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but causes a lot of limitations, causes some problems. And so when I, I started the podcast before my social media, which was not the smart route to go. Most people do it the other way around, as you probably should, but I didn't. And so the purpose was kind of viewing it almost like Oz. We're going down this yellow brick road, we're doing all these things, and then we're peeling back the curtain, we're peeling back the layers, we're peeling back what actually is behind the curtain, Oz, so to speak, or academia as it is. And also trying to correct a lot of misinformation, trying to convey complex things, but also in a way that's interesting because there are podcasts or other things that are pretty well known that do a good job, but they're really boring. And so I try really hard to not do that. <laughs> yeah. What? So when we talk about academia, you know, I've been part of it through like med school and residency and internship and all that or internship and fellowship, whatever the hell it is. Um, and we get out of it. And, you know, I recently tried to kind of, I'm not quite in academics, like there is an element of it, but we're not. And I tried to kind of almost get back into it, even though I d- didn't want to, and I hate academic world, but there was something that was like, you know, you should, I love working with residents. I love working with med students. And when I tried to kind of get back into it, I was like locked out, um, pushed out of it. I didn't fit the picture. There were these hoops I had to jump through that weren't, that were like, well, why did you even apply almost? Um, Even though I was like, oh, your qualities are great. Everything that you can do is great. You're the person we want to have, but you're not even like, you're not even able to sit at the table. So talk about 
that aspect of that it a little bit you're talking about like almost the this it's there in the tower and it's inaccessible to a lot of people yeah i think there's also that sense of elitism that you're describing too that I think has kind of made it a little bit more of a political topic, it seems. And I think it's fair to say that there is kind of this elitism, this I am above everyone else when I'm in this bubble. And it's it's really tricky because there are some programs where you might be able to do both. But a lot of them, it's you feel like you have to pick one or the other. And that gets really tricky especially for medicine or for mental health or psychology, because the people teaching may or may not be doing boots on the ground work in the trenches anymore. Or if you take neuroscience, for example, which is so important, they don't necessarily do work directly with patients or clients. And then how is that information actually getting, getting to the people it needs to reach, like to the public, to providers, to whomever. And so it definitely feels like an us versus them kind of mentality pretty pretty frequently um, and not a lot of consideration of the limitations that are in academia and some fields more than others, I would imagine. Yeah, and I think definitely too, it, it hurts academia because there are people who have a lot of these talents, these skills that are wanting to work and teach and you know, publish or whatever it may be, but they're getting locked out. They're getting pushed out because they don't fit this image or this fit this picture of what somebody in academia is supposed to look like or act like or whatever it may be. So it hurts ultimately the system. And this is what pushes a lot of people out into private work or to, you know, not be affiliated with anybody. Yeah, a hundred percent. And the publisher parish kind of mentality too. Also adjunct teaching where you're given a huge amount of grunt work of doing a lot of the teaching, but you don't get the benefits that some of your colleagues who have maybe full tenure status or even assistant full professors that are somewhere on there who get benefits, they might have more access to being able to kind of level up their career, so to speak. And that constant pressure and academia is uniquely hierarchical in a way that a lot of people who are outside of it probably don't realize. And that hierarchy also tends to protect the hierarchy itself and different people in those positions of power. And it gets particularly complicated, especially like in medicine, um, with, you know, relationships to medical school, then trying to apply to residency, that kind of bottleneck situation that happens with residency. So it's, there are a lot of limitations and a lot of really complicated pieces here and including tenure itself, which does tend to protect a lot of people beyond what I personally think it should be able to. Yeah. Tenure is this thing where, you know, people become bulletproof essentially, despite whatever transgressions, aggressions, trouble that they may be getting into or are causing. Um, so it's it's not good at all, unfortunately. What are some things, or I guess, why why would anybody want to pull this back? Why, I mean, why do you feel like it's your role in a way to kind of reveal this? I think 
in mental health, specifically clinical psychology, where there's this overlap with mental health and psychology. There are some interesting pieces here that I think emphasize the bubble. So one is we really try to be medicine. We're we're not medicine, but we really, I think, because we want to legitimize ourselves, really try to align ourselves with your field, for example, or medicine in general. So we will, for example, do randomized control trials and consider that as the gold standard, just like you would for a medication, except it's not a medication. So if we take CBT, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy, the big one that probably most people have heard about compared to others anyway. So we do that because we want to know if CBT, only CBT helps only depression, for example. But what's not talked about then is the limitations of that. Any decision you make with research, you're then taking away from this other area. So the more control I have over the study, the less applicable it is to real life. And on top of that, the way that we're doing therapy in those studies is extremely rigid, high fidelity to the protocols. So that way you have that consistency, which again is not necessarily related to to real life. So there's nothing wrong with it. Obviously, CBT has its place, and there's a lot of evidence to support it. But again, it's kind of going back to what you were saying of we're putting ourselves up here, and so the things that we are doing is better than what everyone else is doing. And on top of that, I think in my field especially, one of the things that has been highlighted is, and was definitely the case in my experience, is a lot of the professors that we had had not seen clients in a really long time, maybe even since their training, since beyond what they actually had to do to get licensed or to graduate, et cetera. And so if I'm going out into the field and I wanna work with real, I need to know people that know real life. And so there's, there's that piece too of, I think that's probably unique to those fields where they do some kind of clinical work and research to some extent. So there's that piece and then I had an amazing master's program and I had a horrific PhD program. And so going through that and recognizing how that system protects the people in power, as many systems do, academia is not unique in that way. It's just more surprising because academia presents itself as a more progressive institution. And so you kind of feel betrayed in some way, more than you would maybe in some other settings where it's not advertising itself in that particular way. But I will say getting that mix of clinical and counseling psychology, because for your listeners that don't know, they overlap quite a bit. There are some like small differences. Those small differences get magnified depending on the setting that you're in. And I think getting a mix of both has allowed me to kind of say, in every setting, everyone annoys me for completely opposite reasons. So it's all those things kind of combined together. For those who don't know, I mean, we'll kind of like backpedal a little bit um, because I think there is, you know, people who don't know that there are all these differences between, you know, psychology and psychologist is not just like a homogenous kind of group, right? There are different roles, people do different things within psychology. So kind of like going back a little bit, if you can kind of explain like what kind of psychologists can do, what they do, what they do, and then why kind of like what you're explaining, like some of them 
don't see clients, patients and what that means. Yeah. It's a really good point because it gets super confusing. I mean, even the difference between a psychiatrist and psychologist to people gets really confusing. So for psychologists, we do not go to medical school. I would not survive medical school. I I can't do the math situation. So we go and get either a PhD or we can get a PsyD, which less people, fewer people know about that. So it's a doctorate in psychology. And those differences are not huge, but PsyDs tend to focus a little more on the clinical aspect of things. So that's on the psychology level. But it's an important piece because when you say psychologist, most people think, quote, shrink or therapist, when actually that's really only a few fields where that happens. So clinical, counseling, school psychology, and Forensic psych can include that, but it's still underneath clinical psychology. Now, there are tons of fields where that doesn't happen. So, for example, social psychology or political psychology now. Um, also, applied or experimental psychology, all of those different things tend to be much more focused on the research side of things. So, those are people that are not actually going to be working with clients. They're looking at bigger level things people in groups, or basically doing research in those different areas. And those are pretty much all doctoral level. And then there are master's level therapists or counselors. And so usually that requires a master's degree. Now, if we go outside the U.S., it gets more complicated because you can be called a psychologist if you have a master's degree in some other countries. But focusing on the U.S., it's doctoral level with only like one or two exceptions. And again, only a chunk of those actually do therapy or work with clients specifically. So that's a really good point because mental health and psychology are not necessarily synonymous. They can overlap, but they can actually be quite different, which we may get into with some of these topics later. Yeah. And I think that's like a really important thing for people to understand, like as much as possible. Like I know there's, there's times like where I'll be in sessions and I'll be called, you know, a therapist, a psychologist, a psychiatrist, you know, in the same kind of like few sentences. And it's just part of, you know, this, this confusion that's out there. And again, this rule, rule confusion as a whole. So it is kind of like really important when people understand this, like with academics is that there are these people who haven't seen patients in years decades and then they're the ones who are making these decisions about like how do we teach the next generation like kind of like even what we're talking about before like um doing trials and studies and stuff like this important point that you brought up that like you know very rigid manualized cbt or other treatments they don't always work because people are individual people have their own unique you know quirks and you know, things that make them a human being and why there are people who like hate CBT and hate DBT because they're like, it's too by the book and I want to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, if we don't flex and kind of adjust to what we're seeing, who we're working with, like no matter what therapy you're going to do, it's just not going to work. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's huge too, because if you think about the people that are in academia doing those studies, they tend to look a certain way. And so when they recruit participants for those studies to see what's effective, 
those participants tend to look a certain way. And so when we look at even assessments that have been quote normed, meaning like we want to make sure that the assessment measures what we want it to measure, et cetera, looking at that participant pool probably and usually is not representative of our ever growing and increasing diverse population here, particularly in the United States. When we have such a heterogeneous population, we have to be really intentional about who we include in our participant pool. And so when you have people that are in the bubble, they may not be intentionally trying to cause harm. That's usually not the case at all, but it's because it's under their radar and they're not on the ground interacting with people, that intentionality is not happening where it needs to. And so that gets translated in a way into therapy on the ground that may feel invalidating to a lot of people. Or I've seen it being described as like gaslighting, like you said, or not taking into account that if you have one mental health diagnosis, you might have another one. And maybe that was not included in the study. So then what do we do? So, so a lot of that flexibility that you were kind of saying, how does this reflect real life in a lot of different ways? Old, old white people, right? Old white men, right? We'll just say it. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's again, as part of the issue is that like when there is a person who looks like me, we get shut out. When there's a person who looks like you, person who looks like you, they get shut out. And we can't make those changes. We can't make those changes that are necessary for our change of our changing uh, patient population, change of client population, whatever we want to say. Um, and, you know, it's one of the issues that when we talk about people who are non-white people and they say, well, this is my issue with therapy, with psychiatry, with mental health. This is why I don't seek this stuff out. This is the answer, right? This is the reason why that people aren't seeking these things out. And that's why these populations of society are getting affected negatively by mental health stuff more because why would you go somewhere to a place that doesn't want to look at you or doesn't think of you or doesn't accept your kind of what you're going 100%. through? My dissertation was on racial disparities, more specifically among therapists and counseling psychologists, because counseling psychologists like myself, we really love priding ourselves on our cultural considerations. And so if we pride ourselves on that, then theoretically we should do a better job considering all kinds of cultural considerations that are important. Spoiler alert, we don't. <laughs> and so that's the commonality that starts right from training, just like in medicine or other fields. It starts right from the get-go. And that's one thing that's in common in research and in practice. And it's tricky because the people that most need to hear it don't think that it applies to them. So then how do you actually go out and, and reach them, especially when a lot of times it's really subtle and insidious? And then you have social desirability that's really hard to tackle, which means that it sounds bad. If someone tells me that I'm racist, now granted I'm from Mississippi, there are some exceptions to that. In general, when we hear like, oh, someone's racist, you don't want to be associated with that. And from like an evolutionary perspective, we need relationships. So we want to make sure that we avoid that. And so whenever people are doing research, that's really hard not to tip off that social desirability, but then also in practice. So if I bring it up to someone, it might elicit a lot of defensiveness because of what the underlying meaning is, what I associate that with, a lot of deep emotions that are coming from a lot of different places. And so there's that piece too of how do we tackle that in research 
and then also also in practice because of everything that you said the effects that it has and research has shown the outcomes pretty significantly and consistently let's pivot a bit because we can talk about one of the things that drew me to like your your podcast and your platform and stuff is the combating of misinformation um, raising awareness of misinformation I think there was like some study there was some publication that came out somewhat recently years that said like over 90 percent of the health information that is on social media, I think it was TikTok more so in particular, was wrong, is misinformation and disinformation. Um, and I think only 7%, 5 to 7% or something like that was from actual medical professionals. So it's one of the reasons that I have, you know, that I do what I'm doing in my work, um, you know, with my videos and other things like that is combating the misinformation, calling that stuff out. Talk about that a little bit about what, what how it, how you do it and and why it's important to be doing that. Yeah, that's an important piece because everyone tackles that differently. The way you do it is differently than the way I do it, or someone that I follow that I deeply respect. Feed your mental Nicole. She is a psychologist that talks about the gut and brain health relationship and lack thereof based on the research. And the way that she does it is. I'm going to politely and very clearly break down a study and I might have, you know, the green screen filter on so I can show you all the way through that, give you a breakdown. And so a lot of people give the benefit of the doubt to creators that are spreading misinformation and I think they do amazing they do an amazing job of that. And I think psychologists in particular more so probably social psychologists, but any psychologist I think has an advantage here because of the training. And I think we could consult people in STEM, for example, who are also trying to communicate science, both with how to relay that information and also what we're fighting up against. And so essentially the reason why misinformation is so effective is because our brains are really efficient and the inevitable downside, because everything has costs and benefits, cost of that is accuracy and complexity. We don't like complicated answers. We want these nice black and white easy boxes that makes it a lot easier. And so there's a fundamental lack of understanding about science in particular, and that it requires you to be able to sit in that uncertainty and that gray area especially probably more related to our fields than some others and that it's it's a complicated mess here and those errors pop up all kinds of ways and some are more benign like for example we're more likely to pay attention to certain colors over others when we're scrolling in ads and then some have pretty significant consequences um, like one is we're much more likely to click on negative news titles and news outlets know that. And we're all trying to both get education on the same platforms that businesses are getting paid on. And so because that's now happening in the same location, that gets really muddy, it gets really gross, and it gets really messy. Because if I'm more likely to click on this really negative news title, the news outlet knows that. It knows the metrics. And so it's going to keep pumping out negative news titles then. The algorithm, because that's the business platform of all these social media platforms, is, well, we want to keep feeding people ads that they like. We get paid for the ads. We want to make sure we show that to them. 
So then the illusory effect pops up, which means it's an error essentially where we're given slightly incorrect information, but then that exposure over time, we essentially get habituated to it, meaning I'm seeing it and I'm no longer shocked by it. And then over time, I might actually start believing it the more I'm exposed to that. And then, so that stretch happens slowly and insidiously. It's kind of the foot in the door sales technique, if you will. If it's, if it's huge and in your face, then you're obviously going to know that that's happening, but it happens a little bit at a time. And so that's where it gets really sticky. For me, I try to zoom out. I'm a lot less niche, I think, than a lot of other people, which I think has pros and cons. But for me, I try to zoom out. And basically, I let my colleagues do the work of I'm going to give this creator the benefit of the doubt and really share a lot of this. And on my end, I focus more on the creators that it's very obvious that there's not naivete involved. It's very obvious that there are intentional marketing techniques that are being used to exploit people because people need to get paid. And again, that's happening on the same platform where people are trying to get educated on a lot of different topics. And then you add the complication of parasocial relationships, which social psychologists have been studying for decades, where if we think about celebrity culture and when we see a celebrity and we're interacting with them online, we tend to think that we know them more than we do. We tend to think that we have a more intimate relationship with them than we actually do. And we might actually start overly identifying with them because of that. Again, it's an error. It's not intentional. It's usually outside of our awareness. And so if I call out a particular creator, <laughs> one I think is one that we've both called out, the followers then may not only feel like we're calling out someone that they care about, yes, one that like they care about, but also that we're calling them out directly and personally and like their own identity. And that's what gets so sticky and why it's so important. And we, again, it's so sneaky. That is the biggest part is it's outside of our awareness. And my point is to go after the creators where it's not ignorance. It's not outside of their awareness. It's that lack of genuineness on my end. So that's kind of where my role, I think, has become. Yeah, and I think what you're describing, like with the parasocial um, connections, the parasocial attachments that form, we use the word attachment <laughs> you know, pointedly a little bit because, you know, it was some of this, this specific creator who may be of a holistic type. Um, but, you know, there or there was... The situation occurs is they create these massive online followings and once they get called out on this stuff, whether it's for exploiting things, putting stuff out there that's incorrect, um, financial gain that's there, getting called out on, you know, social media likes that they may have made that were aligning a certain, you know, QAnon-ish way, um, people defend them when they really shouldn't. Um, and it, it causes these huge problems. And I think there is this aspect, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I always kind of joke around and say like, I'm not joke around, but say like, I'm, I'm a huge wrestling fan. I've been a huge wrestling fan my entire life. And, you know, seeing like wrestling Twitter, the internet wrestling community. And, you know, we've, we've seen the, it's, the community is mostly male, right. And, and they kind of 
unfortunately fit a lot of the stereotypes that come around with what people think of when they think of wrestling fans, right? So we've seen in the past decade this, this rise of women's wrestling. And then you see these comments like when a, a female wrestler gets married or is in a relationship with somebody else and it's like, oh my God, my chance like with this person has gone out the window and I'm never going to get married to them. And oh my God, it's breaking my heart and all these things. And it's like, bro, you never had a chance in the first place, right? You you, you, weren't, you weren't at the table. Just because you support them on like Twitter and you like their Instagram photos, it doesn't mean that like you're going to like magically like have this relationship with them and get married and, and become this famous person because you've because of this right it's, it's this totally and that's you know an example like, again exactly like what you're saying these parasocial relationships that show up and become insidious and then same way right it's like we buy stuff right? we buy their merch we buy we go to their signings we go to these things that are there same thing with their psychologists right these these influencers you know psychiatrists included everybody like anybody who's a social media uh, mental health influencer same thing that occurs right and it's it is a huge huge issue and and it's something that when i think when i we called out this same person it's the realization that like this person's reach these people's reach is huge and in the millions right and so when we every word that has to go out there has to be looked at and very you know poignant or pointed words so it's important. It's super, super, super important. And I guess we can use this transition into like your your spicy Thursdays and the story behind that and what that means. Yeah. So it was an accident. <laughs> um, spicy Thursday. I had. I had like these designated days for certain content and I was still figuring it out and I'm pretty spicy every day in, in my personal life and my therapist says I have to get it out online or it gets out in real life so we're gonna do it and I can't remember what post I started with but it happened to be on a Thursday and then the next Thursday, it happened to occur again. And then I think I just said, oh, ha, 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 spicy Thursday. And now I, if I die, I think I have to appoint someone to take over spicy Thursday because even though I have not like a massive following, it's very engaged. And so I will get messages. People will send me things to post for spicy Thursday. They will tell me they can't wait for Spicy Thursday. If I post a little later in the day on Spicy Thursday, I'm getting DMs about it. And I, it's a way to curate it because on my end. It's nice that I can curate it, like plan ahead, make sure I'm articulating everything that I want to be able to articulate in that moment. So that part is nice. It's scheduled. I can channel it, not be impulsive, have it all there. And it's a day that sometimes is entertaining, but also sometimes is really heavy and heartbreaking. And that is 100% a day where I will rotate calling out my own field. I will call out life coaches or grifters, aka Taylor Griffs or grifties as I now call them. Also, 
any academia, any system at play and recognizing that we can actually call out all of these things at one time. People just aren't used to doing critical research, which is kind of what I'm trying to portray here is you can hold accountability, all these things at one time. And it's nice that it's Thursday because I think I was already posting memes on the weekend. So now you get a palate cleanser going into the weekend and it's not as heavy as it might be. So sometimes it's entertaining and sometimes it is heavy and entertaining and sometimes it is a gut punch. And so that's where Spicy Thursday came from. <laughs> no, it's, it's super important because we need to have, you know, again, I'm a comics book person too, um, but like, you know, there's that old from, from Watchmen is, you know, who watches the Watchmen? It's that same kind of concept of who's policing ourselves, who's analyzing ourselves and who's going to make sure that we're we're staying in our lane that we're kind of putting out the right stuff. I know like one that you did recently was um, a psychologist or a psychiatrist out in uh, England who was, you know, essentially breaking the cold water rule by diagnosing people via uh, Meghan Markle by social media, calling her like narcissistic personality disorder or other things like that, which was <laughs> total, total bullshit uh, in a way. But, you know, again, it's an appropriate response is to call a person out and say like, no, you can't do this and you'd better just shut your mouth essentially. Yeah. That's where, that's where I think I come in. I think when we're trying to make these big changes, I think you have to tackle it from all angles. And so kind of like you're saying, there are people already on social media that do an awesome job at gently correcting or having a good faith interpretation of what's going on. And so I will definitely get critiques and comments on things like that. That one was pretty unanimous and obvious, and it was Carol, and she's actually in L.A., which is why I went super hard, because she's in the U.S. and a witness, and she should know better. And also has said sketchy things, apparently. And so there are there is that role, but I think mine is much more, I've paid attention and I realize it's not just ignorance on their end. I'm going after the people where they know and they don't care. That's where I come in because that's where I get really, really angry because of the lack of, for me, the value is genuineness and transparency. And so I'm told often that I mean, or why can't you have a good faith interpretation of what this person is doing? Like that creator that we both called out. And on my end, it's... Do, do you think that when you're getting scammed that there's a neon sign right there? I know we have truth default theory, which is a social psych thing where we tend to assume people are telling the truth and their benefits and there are costs to that. And so where I come in is, huh, so I get the bad faith interpretation toward me, but the person that seems nice, the one that's actually exploiting people, but with a smile on, that's the good faith interpretation. And so that's where I come in is I'm the heavy hitter. I'm the one that comes in as like a last resort. So I think that's important, kind of like you're saying. Everyone does it in a different way, and I think we need like all angles tackled here. Yeah, and it's, it's so fascinating to me. You know, I think when I talked with um, Dr. Lena Haji recently, um, we were talking about like our fav favorite psychopaths in a way or the people who are the most intriguing to us. And, you know, I've, again, always been really fascinated by uh, Jim Jones, the cult leader, um, he was somebody that, again, like this really tapped into that. These people are charismatic people who prey on these, you know, the, the weaknesses or the, some of the, um, 
self-confidence or issues that may be there to kind of bring people on board with them. And then when somebody comes in, family members, friends who are like, yo, something's wrong here. Like you need help. Like you need to get out of this situation. They're so blinded. You know, they're, they're so kind of brainwashed to, to get out of those situations that it becomes nearly impossible until it's too late almost. With that, like, I mean, you know, you brought up some of these issues, some of these concerns that are there, like, what are some of the other ethical issues kind of along this line um, or, or other stuff that's there that we see within the mental health field, within some of the therapists, within some of like the social media stuff? I know that we had like therapist Twitter was like blowing up and calling people out left and right on ethics violations and reporting people to the boards and stuff like it got a very, very spicy. Yeah. Um, but what are, what are your thoughts on all of that? I cannot speak to therapist Twitter as much because I'm not on the in crowd on that. So the inner workings. And I think the crowd of therapists on there versus some other platforms seems to be a little different. And it gets so sticky. So that psychiatrist that we were just talking about, uh, that was so obviously an ethical violation. But when, when does it become unethical? So we're limited by limited time and space on all these platforms. And we're trying to communicate these really complicated, complex topics. Doesn't really matter what the topic is. It's going to be complex. Any of the topics that you and I talk about, actually. And it's going to be reductionistic. So how do we navigate that in a way that is going to be as fair as we can be while also recognizing that we're competing against those that have a ton of following, that get a lot of traction, that are spreading misinformation. And so we kind of have to lean into the marketing piece as well. And so how do we balance that line between, okay, well, I kind of need to get more followers. I need to get that traction to compete. And I need to make sure that I still always have in the back of my mind not just these specific ethical guidelines, because even that is reductionistic, but when we think about philosophical ethics, like ethics as a philosophy or aspirational ethics, that's one of the complaints I have about our field kind of in general is because of the systems we work in, it becomes a CYA move. So, oh, I didn't technically violate that guideline, so it's not unethical. And that's not what it means. That's not what that means. And so instead of focusing on non-maleficence so definitely don't we like don't want to cause harm here but we also want to focus on beneficence meaning we want to provide the best service that we can and on social media then we're serving the public it's not necessarily an individual client or, or patient in our office and it gets really tricky trying to combat the misinformation trying to reduce things down also some people rely somewhat their income even as mental health providers on social media. So that gets tricky too. And then of course, there's the really sticky ethical situation of like, if clients or patients are following you on social media, what do you do with that? Do we disclose that ahead of time and inform consent? Because that's not confidential if they decide to interact with you on different social media platforms. So Oh, there's a lot of ethical debates there. I think therapy Twitter took it to a new level though about anything that therapists do online. Can we drink or eat in session? Can we talk about this particular thing on 
social media. And I think another one is how much of ourselves do we share on social media? So I don't know, every which way we turn, there's a debate there. And I don't know if there's necessarily a clear cut route. In my mind, what I try to keep in mind is not as much the non-maleficence. Of course, that's necessary, but it's, in my mind, it's not sufficient. What is beneficence? when we're on these platforms that reward misinformation, that reward limited time and space. And that's really difficult to do. It is really hard, right? Because these platforms, all these platforms are based on engagement and what what drives engagement is controversy, right? So you say something controversial and it's going to get somebody to comment or post or retweet or whatever it may be and say something that drives up engagement, that drives up numbers and all that stuff. So it's really hard. So when people are out there putting out like good stuff, nice, wholesome, hearty stuff that could be helpful, you know, they get shrunk down and they get, they get put down in place a little bit and it's really hard to see them. Um, and that's why we see this, this rise in the people who are doing crap out there because it drives yeah. up engagement if nothing Super else. Tricky. So cool. You talked about also before like podcasting, podcasting in regards to like, that's how you started off doing things. What have you gained from it? What have been some things that have been interesting? What have you learned from that as a whole? I really wish I could tell 2020 me that it is going to be a lot bigger of a learning curve than you realized. And just because you have a PhD does not mean that podcasting is going to be a quick learn and done situation. I have the biggest respect for sound and music engineers at this point with all the editing. It is amazing how much time I spent on YouTube. So there's the technical aspects that are just oh man, I do this particular thing a lot and I need to, how do I do this in Audacity and I need to YouTube it? How do I do, so all the, there's the technical pieces and then there's also the big picture pieces because I think just like social media platforms, your podcast evolves over time. And so the topics are my approach, even that big picture wise has changed since I started. And I, the benefit of hosting a podcast rather than being a guest is that I can edit myself talking when I talk way too much. I take us on too many side quests. And so I've learned to listen back and, okay, so we're going to make sure we're flexible and really, really listen. And I think the most important piece is me trying to think if I think about the Michael Scott quote from the office, when it's these really tough science fields, explain it to me like I'm five. So even when I'm talking to someone in my field that has a lot of expertise, I'm trying to remember that that's not who we're talking to. We're talking to people that may not know. And that is so, you do not learn how to do that in academia. Going back to academia, you don't learn how to break these topics down in a way that the general public can understand. So that's a learning curve and making sure obviously that it's like fun and interesting. I think that's a learning curve too. So I just, we'd have a whole list of things, but I really thought I have a PhD. I had just graduated. So I thought, oh, okay, like we're going to be able to do, no, it is a learning curve <laughs> all the way. 
Yeah, it's it's one of the things that like definitely as I've started to get more into the social media and do more of these things, like I was like, whoa, there's a whole art to everything. Like I think we were talking about before, like I've spent hundreds of dollars in the past like week or two just to kind of get like the setup, you know, the technical stuff right and spending more time like on YouTube (laughs) than I'd like to admit, like watching how to do stuff and learning how to do stuff and trying to game plan and figure things out. And like buying all these cables and stuff, I'm like, what is going on with my desk? Like, this isn't what I expected to do, be doing a little bit once I finished up my residency. And and similarly too, right? Like, people don't automatically like look at your title and be like, oh, let me let me listen or let me watch this person. You've got to have stuff that's engaging, that's going to bring people to the table and keep them keep them listening. Um, and that's really hard to do sometimes. And sometimes we, you know, when we balance this stuff out with the clinical work too, it becomes this other kind of challenge. And it's, it's admirable that we're able to kind of, that you're able to kind of like spend that time and figure that stuff out so that to bring something out there, that's helpful, helpful information. Yeah. I think having a group of people that are going to give you brutally honest feedback for anyone that wants to start a podcast or get on social media in general a lot of people are going to hype you up and they're going to be really nice. Remember social desirability. Make sure you have people that are going to be very, very transparent with you because those are the people that you're going to want to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. You need you need the people who are going to keep you real. Wrapping up a bit, I always come and we discuss like what people like to do as a person, right? Um, who you are as a person. One of the things that I think when people see you, they see the Spider-Man tattoo, right? Talk a little bit about the Spider-Man um, and tattoos and other stuff like that. Cause I think it's, yeah. it's a unique thing, yeah. right? For sure. Um, I am a Marvel fan. I do like my comics. I also, people don't get to see this, but I do have my Game of Thrones tattoo as well. And so I do like my different comics, different things. I do cosplay. And I think just having, yes, I I was thinking about posting some throwbacks of cosplays because I did a couple this year, but I, I think it's, this shows a lot because number one, I love Spider-Man, I love Marvel, and I'm known as the person when we're in group consultations, I will frequently say my Spidey senses are tingling, like something, something is up. And so, and I think it also just shows people that it challenges professionalism, whatever that is. And just going back to that meme of if I can get my neck drilled on for an hour, I can deal with your meeting that we have to do for two hours that everyone is miserable in and I'm going to be able to handle that. But I do enjoy all of those things too. And obviously I have my little neuron back here and I have my art. I am obsessed with my cat. Um, and those are kind of the big ones. Cosplay is definitely the big one. I'm just not doing it all the time because it takes a lot of prep work and someone with ADHD still do it all the day before and will sew something for for like 12 hours straight. So that's a work in progress. (laughs) What kind of cosplay do you do? I know, cause I know like from a lot of my patients that do it, I don't do it personally, but like I have a lot of patients who do do it. Like it is a lot of work. It is a lot of stuff that goes into it. You can't just You can't just do it the night before. Yes. So this year for Halloween, there was a Comic-Con here 
and I went as Lilu from Fifth Element. I did not make the suspenders. This was not fully homemade. I want to preface this because you 100% could not make that the day before, and your girl has massive hand tremors, would not have turned out well. And earlier this year, I hadn't gone in a couple years because of the pandemic, so I wanted to go as a deep track. Someone that is not going to be stopped every two minutes for pictures. So I went as Siren, who's Banshee's daughter in Marvel, but as the Morrigan, so the Celtic goddess. And so it was definitely a deep track. Like two people stopped me. It was amazing. So I still put in the effort, but I'm not going to be stopped every five seconds. I've also done Dark Phoenix, Mary Jane, trying to... I was a dead possum as a cosplay. That was actually my favorite. And the a new generation of Poison Ivy. I've done several, and I have a few ideas next year. But yes, 100%. Takes a lot of effort. Thankfully, my brother has a 3D printer and is an engineer, so he can deal with the math things that I don't understand, and my brain takes a screenshot. But I'm hoping we can collaborate this year and it's really difficult and I will say that including the comic geek thing or nerd thing in therapy is sometimes like super helpful a lot of people are doing D&D in therapy now and that's really cool or or group therapy with D&D um, for those of you that don't know Dungeons and Dragons or I use a lot of video game references sometimes so, so there there are ways that that can like kind of be snuck into therapy too in a way that I think is super cool and helpful yeah, I I also am a huge Marvel person. Like at my other office, my my child adolescent office, I have like all the Marvel Funko Pops lining my my inside window for the outside, so people know they're like, oh, he's he's the Marvel guy, he's the Avengers guy, um, he's the Avengers Doctor, and I was like, sure, we'll take that. Uh, <laughs> but of the of the Avengers, or sorry, of the Marvel movies that have come out, uh, what's been your favorite when mm. and why? There are some that I still actually need to catch up on. It's kind of getting to a point where it's hard to keep up with the shows more so than the movies. I think some of the Spider-Man movies have been amazing. I think Black Widow was decent. I don't think it did full justice to how complicated yeah. her backstory is, but I also don't know if Disney would have been able to... <laughs> appropriately convey that um so yeah I think probably I love Tom Holland but I also <laughs> am a huge Miles Morales yep. fan and that was probably one of my favorite versions of Spider-Man and the graphics also was a huge fan of Black Panther because I don't think that in the comics he got enough attention at all and also Deadpool I'm a sucker for Deadpool but the actual Deadpool movies, not the first version that he scrapped, and it was really awful. <laughs> <laughs> that that one didn't count, it so didn't count. it didn't exist. It doesn't exist in anybody's memory. No, I, I I'm with you on like the Black Panther. I think Black Panther and and Wakanda Forever like were phenomenal. I think you know the, I've you know the newest one like I was crying. I think throughout like the entire movie, and I was like, oh my god, uh, this was this hit me in all the feels. So. And it was just a great representation too. Like we have the first time we have like a, a a black superhero, African superhero, and really giving him, and not just him, but like the whole 
nation of Wakanda, the women of black of T'Challa, um, a lot of due and a lot of credit. And then again, handling his, you know, unfortunate death and passing gracefully and then showing that impact. I think it did such a good job of like showing grief, how we deal with grief in so many ways. Um, so there's that aspect of things. I think they've been doing a really good job recently that people like are kind of like, you know, the, the newest phase are kind of sh- flying under the radar a bit because people aren't always like, well, this isn't Avengers and this isn't X, Y, and Z. But I was like, it's showing a different portion of it, right? It can't just be all the same wham, bam, destroy a city and all that stuff. So I appreciate it. <laughs> all right. And the last thing, we'll talk about the last thing in here is, I put it in our notes in big big caps, birds. <laughs> Tell us about the birds. <laughs> so because I am slightly erratic in the things that I post and I do not follow the whole niche thing that you're, quote, supposed to follow, I think it started because... I had interviewed Dylan, the biologist. And so if you don't follow him or if other people don't, they absolutely should follow him. Kills it on educating people. Their graphics are amazing. Everything's super easy to read. So he is a herpetologist. So all about frogs and snakes and mostly frogs, all kinds of cool stuff there. And so I think that that's how we started that conversation. And Then I started going down deep dives and I had some questions for my dad. So here's the reason it started. My dad is a bird biologist, AKA an ornithologist, very neurodivergent in all the ways. And so it's a, it's a perfect job for him. And so I asked him, okay, first of all, I've grown up around all these birds, got attacked by one, one time. And I would like to know, where did these names come from? They're the wildest names. Ornithologists should be in charge of marketing all endangered species, in my opinion, because the names are inappropriate, absolutely inappropriate and equally amazing. And so that's kind of where it started is I just started finding these bird names and I would ask him, dad, what is this? Like, And so then it went from there and you, I, along the way I've learned really cool stuff and I just thought it was going to be a one-time thing, but no, because then people DM me small subset and they said, no, I need more bird content. I don't really care about your mental health or your spicy content. I need to know more about these birds. And so I don't know now we're committed and we're just going to keep going with it. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you, you got to, right? It's definitely the same thing. I know I've had this similar kind of thing where, you know, I've created all these kind of characters in my, in the, the multiverse of Mirza, as I call it. And one of them is Sunny, the motivational guru, who is like this very terrible motivational guru, essentially. And there, anytime I post a video of his, it flops, right? Like, it's definitely like you can see, like the videos, like the, the views are like really low and people are like, oh, whatever. But there is that small subset of people who are like, oh, Thank you, Guru. Thank you, Sunny, the Guru. We needed you this this motivation on this day to like you know skip out on work and do all these things. And I was like, even though I know he's he's killing my killing my views and killing all doing all this stuff, like he will never die. Sunny will 
live on for another day. As, so as you should, as you should. Um, all right, and Dr. Mack, how can we follow along, and how can we, yeah. How can we follow along with you and, and, and follow along if your exploits? you are brave enough, I guess. And I don't know if you want bird content or spicy content or whatever. Or memes. I am revealing the Ivory Tower pod or podcast depending on the platform. And so I've been trying to be better about being more active on TikTok. It gets really overwhelming for me. I'm much more active on Instagram, but I'm starting to get better about posting more consistently on TikTok. And so... Those are probably the two biggest platforms that I'm on. And so you'll see some podcast stuff, some mental health stuff, some memes, call outs that are very spicy, and then some random stuff about a yellow-cheeked tit that is a bird. <laughs> that is an actual name of a bird. Wonderful. Any any last things that you want to have? Any parting words for the people who maybe stuck around or listening or watching? Oh, man. I should have prepared something for this. I mean, may the force be with you going into 2023, I guess. And yeah, just being mindful about what information you're consuming on social media. I think that's fair. Don't be an asshole. Don't be an idiot. Be aware of what you're doing. That'd be a, that'd be yeah. <laughs> a better social media world. So, all right. Well, I want to thank you, Dr. Mac, for being on here. Um, it was a pleasure talking with you about all the stuffs and i'm sure we will connect again <laughs> thank you yes thank you so much for having me